0: Hi, everyone. Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more.
1: From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Hey guys, it's Helen Molesworth. For those listeners who were here last year, you might remember several shorter episodes we dropped last fall. I'm thrilled to be back on the feed again to release a few more. We'll be dropping them every week or so, and I'll be calling up friends and colleagues to catch up and get into whatever is top of mind for them. Be it happenings in the studio, classroom, the museum, or the art world at large. I hope you enjoy them, and as always, thanks for listening. Hey there, Steve Locke. I was looking forward to talking to you today because... Uh, Like last year, we're going to do Best of 2023. So I'm going to throw out the show that really moved the needle for me about what a museum is and what it can do in a community. I saw a show with the following title, A Singularly Marine and Fabulous Produce, The Culture of Seaweed, which was a show that took place at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. It was an exhibition that focused on seaweed, which is this extraordinary thing that lives and grows in the ocean. It's the only plant we have that has no roots, which is
0: really a beautiful kind of thing to think about. Okay. Did you know that before you saw the show?
1: No, I did not. Okay. Okay. I have a font of fun facts about seaweed (laughs) because of this show. This show included 19th century seaside painting of women gathering seaweed. Apparently women gathered seaweed because the shoreline was the commons. And this was a way for women to make money. Mm. And they did it both on the northern northeastern coast of the United States and in England and France. So there's all this go-between. So you've got the Atlantic and all the moving of things back and forth over the Atlantic in the 18th and 19th century. You have... The history of sailing. You have all of these incredible books that women made. Women would go out and collect seaweed and make these beautiful books of printed pieces of seaweed. The vast majority of observational scientific knowledge we have about seaweed comes from women doing this kind of wacky stuff on the shoreline in the 18th and 19th centuries. Who knew? So the show was marvelous. And it was marvelous because it was so small, it was so modest, and yet it literally gave you a wormhole. I didn't see the ocean and the shoreline again the same way for the rest of the summer. I didn't look at landscape painting or, or specifically maritime seascape painting the same way for the rest of the summer. And I learned a lot about New Bedford, which once was the richest town in the whole Northeast when yes, whaling... It was. Right. So I guess what I'm making a plea for is the specificity of regional culture, the specificity of regional museums, the experimentation that can take place with exhibition making in smaller venues seems to me like a place where we should be looking to for ideas, especially as our big city museums feel a little hypertrophied to me at the moment.
0: But, you know, when I lived in New England, uh, anytime we went to Mass Mocha, anytime we went to Peabody Essex Museum, all those museums in the uh, greater Boston area that have a relationship to shipwright culture or whaling culture, it seems like a spot where you can do something really different and really, really deep, you know, because this sounds like a really, really deep investigation.
1: It was really deep, and the catalog is wonderful for people who would, who can't make the show and want to buy the book. The catalog brought together feminist historians, naturalists, eco historians, and
0: art historians. That's so interesting. Like, why can't anyone else do this? Do you think it's because of this? Is is it? You really think it's because of the size, and the and the writ of the institution that they're able to do it.
1: I do. I think sometimes being a smaller institution outside of the quote-unquote mainstream gives you a kind of freedom, you know, where you can play around with the weird, funky stuff you have in your collection. So the capacity to play seems much higher. And I think that's a really interesting thing we should be thinking about and looking about. As more and more people go to museums, can part of what we think about museums be about their regionality and, the, and about what it means to serve a local audience?
0: It's so interesting to talk about localness. I'm sort of in love with the idea of someone wandering through a museum, some curator wandering through a museum, and developing this idea based on what is at hand and thinking about the people who live in the area or the people who have a relationship to the history of whaling, like curating the show for them.
1: And then I went to Vienna in September, and the MAC, the modern art museum that's the part of the art school there, also had a show of a local person, a woman named Gertie Froelich. Gertie Frolich was a tapestry maker, a watercolorist, and a graphic designer who designed all of the posters for the local repertory theater's avant-garde film program. She oh, also she held I know. She also held a very important salon in Vienna. And this show was marvelous. I had did not know this woman's work, or I or I should say I only knew one of the project of this of Gertie Freulex for, for Andre Heller's Luna Luna, her contribution was to make gingerbread cookies and gingerbread houses. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) So this is like this incredibly wonderful, eccentric woman who pursued her own aims, her own agenda in Vienna, had this fantastical full life. And here was this exhibition about her. And again, it was something about the regionality, like Gertie Froelich is really important in Vienna in the post-war period. That's who she was. That's who she is. And this show made it seem like a tragedy that you hadn't met her.
0: Wow. That's kind of the goal when you're trying to introduce someone. Exactly. As an artist, right? Exactly. We have these exhibitions that are supposed to be um, constitutive, right? We have all this stuff. Let's take a look at it together and see if it's worth anything.
1: So who did you see that you were interested in this year? Oh what did girl, you see I, that, that...
0: I, I I got nothing. I can't. I, that that was amazing. Like I, I I feel like I missed out because I didn't see those two shows.
1: Come on um, now.
0: I saw. I did see a lot of stuff. I saw a lot of gallery stuff. I ran around a lot. I did go to DC for the sort of the the DC version of the Gustin show, mm. which was breathtaking and beautiful and superlatives don't don't even address it. But at the same time, there was a show up called A Window Suddenly Opens, which was a look at contemporary Chinese photography. And I'm not a photographer, but a lot of my understanding of performance came out of what was happening in China after uh, Tiananmen Square, where artists' materials were restricted. So artists were using their bodies. And documentation and photography became a big part of it. And so that introduced me to a lot of Chinese artists that I was really, really excited about. And seeing the mm-hmm. show, like uh, work that was 20 years old, like Zhang Wan and uh, other artists whose work is part of the vernacular now. We, we see it now, like Cao Fei and Zhang Hui and all these different artists who are working in photography. And working in photography, not just documentary, or not just um, social realism, but fantasy, and uh, working with narrative, and thinking about how photography has been used by political regimes, like the difference between seeing someone in their Communist Party ID card when they're a kid, and then years later seeing that same subject as a housewife. And uh, it was a, a massive show, and it was really quite Stunning to see that work that feels, especially thinking about it now, it just feels so courageous mm. to pick up a camera or to, to, to write your history on your body and then have it photographed. So then your history becomes layered and then you vanish. And then so it was just, it was, Helen, it was just so moving. It sounds kind of stupid to say nowadays, but it really felt like it was about freedom.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. It
0: was really art that was about like, you know, here is my vision. Right. And I'm going to put it forward. And the sort of democracy of photography, like the uh, the ease of it in terms of the access to the apparatus was very much on view.
1: The other thing that I think is still happening, I think we're at the tail end of it is that we're getting artists pandemic shows. And there's mm. something about what you said about, you know, that the, Chinese photography show was about freedom. There's something about the intensity of the post-pandemic show. For instance, I know you and I both saw Larry Pittman's show at Lehman Mopin, And like, oh, yeah. those were his pandemic pictures. Yeah, And I thought they were some of the best paintings he's ever made. Like the freedom of the studio, the freedom of not going out for the, that two years, you know, the freedom of just working produced some extraordinary bodies of work. And also, I think in that show,
0: it's very clear that Pittman has a way of making a painting, right? You can recognize the Larry Pittman painting when you see it. What was fascinating for me in that show was like he added things to his repertoire of image making that I was not prepared for. He painted elements that came closer to Trump loya in those paintings than I have ever seen him do. And I remember looking at the paintings and thinking, oh, he cut a hole in the painting. That's kind of interesting. And then I got closer and I thought, oh my God, he painted that. As someone who is a painter, I just want you to know that when you look at some of those Larry Pittman paintings, that shit is hard to do. I think people take it for granted because it's so um, maximalist.
1: You know, the other person whose post-pandemic show is up right now is Dana Schutz. And I i thought this show was just, I, I thought it was riveting oh, and wow. perplexing, really strong and new, new. You know when an artist you really like makes a new body of work and you're yeah. like, oh, I'm going to have to get used to this. Like I yeah. have to metabolize it. Not the artist. It's not the, you know, like the artist is ahead of me. Like I felt mm-hmm. like, oh, Dana's out there ahead of everybody right now. And we're going to have to metabolize this body of work.
0: I think that for her as a painter, she could have had a very easy time of it, making a Dana Schutz painting. And I think that for her, it's the choice to actually make the paintings that you need to make versus the paintings that everybody wants to see. The palette is completely different. It's very clear that Gustin is in the studio with her. There's a lot of the sort of idea of Corbet. And the sort of uh, landscape the sort of different kind of like um, lush, verdant, damp landscape. It seems like things have gotten muddy and mucky and difficult. It's sort of like the human
1: clay. And it's interesting that you say that because the sculptures feel, even though they're cast bronze, they still have the kind of tacky slip wetness that they would as, as if they were made of clay. Yeah. As if they were made of unfired, still wet clay that she was working on. They have a very live, viscous presence. That's such a good word. Who else did you see? I saw going
0: back for a second, talking about like a show that introduces an artist to you. You know, that uh, Miyoko Ito at Matthew Marks. Did you see that? Mm, I did see that show. It, it was one of those shows that all my painter friends were, we were all screaming about it. Because I wasn't familiar with this work. And I walked into Matthew Marks and I was like, wow, these feel very fresh and exciting and new. And they're from the 70s. Right. And so I was like, what is it about this moment and this person who's making work? Very heavily worked paintings, very rich surfaces, very um, things that allude to the landscape or or the bed or 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 different sorts of areas of the world but are not that you know and it's it's kind of hard to make a painting that is something and isn't something at the same time mm. but ito managed to do it over and over again
1: one of the things that um when i was going back through my diary i realized that i had 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 very powerful encounters with books i read two books that I thought were really extraordinary and they're related in a way. One is Christina Sharpe's Ordinary Notes, which is, you know, it's her second book after In the Wake. And in many ways, it's her kind of cover or takedown or revision or reimagining of Roland Barthes' Camera Lucida. Hey. It's a book in which... Uh, She really grapples with the legacy of her relationship with her mother, the grief upon the death of her mother, and how the racism and white supremacy of the world sort of inflects everything about what she can say in relation to her grief and to image making. And so what you have is you have women who are really trying to figure out who they are through the matrix of the colonial project and through the long arm of colonialism. And in both of the books, I felt like the fuel, the electricity, the ethanol was rage. Rage is an engine rather than an emotion.
0: Your description of um, Ordinary Notes makes it sound like such a compelling book that I don't, I, I want to read it, but in some ways, Helen, I I don't think I can, you know, there's a lot of pain in the world right now and um, I'm not looking for more. And, you know, I I also think that a lot of people in this country need to know what their their fellow countrymen experience on a day-to-day basis, right? I think that that is really, really important work to do, right? I sometimes think I, I'm tired of hearing about it. Like, I'm glad that you read that book. Like, I feel like that's a book that you needed to read. Right. I don't know if it's a book that I need to read. And I think that those are really, really important distinctions to make. Like, I think that it's very hard sometimes to, it's hard to be an activist or to be currently constantly woke in every aspect of
1: your life. So, can I ask you something about that? Because when I read the Christina Sharp book, I was really aware of how hard it was for me to read it. Mm -hmm. I was really aware of something that Arthur Jaffa said when he said, Listen, this is a conversation by, for, and among Black people. Right. I'm okay if white people listen, Mm -hmm. but like you're not the intended audience, right. Per se, you're not being addressed. Right, And I very much felt with Christina Sharpe's book, part of its difficulty, part of the difficulty of reading it for me as a white woman was I was really aware, like, oh, I am not being addressed in this book. The
0: great thing about being black, right, and knowing white people is that at some point, a white person is going to say, well, my friend Steve says x right and so i try very hard not to have those conversations with white people because i don't want to be the representative sample for their cocktail party so i tend i have a tendency to avoid those conversations right Mm. i don't avoid those conversations with you which is why i'm talking to you this way right right um because we have been through enough together. So when someone, I'll give you a great example. Uh, When Citizen was a a very- Claudia Rankine's book. Mm -hmm. Powerful book, right? That almost like whole cities were reading it together, right? The number of white people who wanted to talk to me about Citizen, I was like, oh no, baby, no, 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 no. I'm not the one and today is not the day. Right. And so th- those are the kinds of things that I struggle with, where something right. needs to come to a larger consciousness. And I'm sure that I need my consciousness raised as well. Right. I struggled mightily within the wake. Um, I, I, I remember reading it and thinking I need to talk to some of my friends about this. I need to process what I've read here because it didn't feel like it was something I could process with white people. Right. Because it would have been like having to translate it, switch it up and make it palatable for them. So then I could have my own feelings about it. And, you know, I, I, I'm always super interested in when people talk about what black people are like, or what black people experience or what blackness is and all this sort of stuff. I always find that a very fascinating thing because I grew up in Detroit, and one of the things you learn growing up in Detroit is that black people don't have a leader and black people don't have um, a universal way, don't have a universal experience. And now people want to talk about what blackness is or how what blackness does and post-blackness and all this sort of stuff. I just think like, wow, that's that might be it for you. But like, like you're coming from a context of, you know, a British school system because you grew up in Canada. You know and like what you're an immigrant to this country or maybe you were born here you have this relationship to blackness or maybe you're african american immigrant or maybe you're like the descendant of slaves and like so all these different sort of diasporic ideas come into it and like when black people have those conversations they're aware of the, all those differences and white people are not aware or they flatten those differences right when they talk about blackness, like the conversations I have with my friends who are first generation immigrants who are black are very different than the conversations I have with the members of my family who've been in this country for like 300 years. Right. It's a very different relationship to blackness. Right? Well, I mean, like I said, I, I, I am glad those books are in the world. I'm glad that they are, that people read them. I read them, but I, I am very careful. Mm. About who I discuss them with, Mm. and that's no shade to you because, like, we can talk about anything. Yeah, yeah, no shade taken. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that stuff on a podcast. Right? Like, I'm not going to do that.
1: Yeah. Well, is there anyone else you wanna you wanna shout give a shout out to, either living or dead, before we um, adjourn for the rest of the year, Steve?
0: Well, you know that Richter show, that last Richter show at Zwerner. Mm. It was very interesting to see the end of something. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It felt like the end. And I think that that's a good place to leave it. And I saw some really great shows this year. I saw.
1: Can I ask you, know, you though, what did sort of, it feel like the end of? Did it feel like the end of just Richter's project? Or did it feel like the end of a certain kind of project about abstraction or modernism or picture-making under the late capitalism? Like, what what was it the end
0: of for you? You know, I think there's this really great, you know, there's lots of great uh, conversations between Richter and Buchlo, you know, Benjamin Buchlo, right? And in, in one, Richter says, like, he's trying to make a, a beautiful painting, but, you know, all, this, all the beautiful culture of Titian and all that stuff is gone. It's gone now. You can't make a painting of the Annunciation in 2023. Like he tried to do it and just couldn't do it, right? I think that with this show, that kind of painting that Richter does is gone. I don't think we I don't think it's possible to access that now that he's not doing it anymore. And I, mm-hmm. I I'm I'm happy to be proven wrong, right? But I do think like the sort of process painting and Jack is gone too. Jack Witten is gone too. Right. So those two kinds of like paintings that develop. Paintings that are process-based, but also emotional. Like, Mm. I I don't know if that's possible anymore. I think that those paintings might be done. It really felt like the end of being able to do that kind of work. Yeah, Amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, Mr. Locke, as always, I love talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, my dear. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.